This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, we'll speak with Seymour Hirsch. He's won dozens of awards for his reporting on Milai, Abu Ghraib, and CIA surveillance of the anti-war movement in the Nixon years. He's also written a dozen books. The newest one is Reporter, a Memoir. It's out now in paperback. And we're still thinking about D.A. Pennybaker, the filmmaker who made Don't Look Back, the amazing documentary about Bob Dylan's tour of England in 1965. It made film history for its striking cinema verite style. Pennybaker died on August 1st. We'll listen to clips from an interview we did with him in 2001. But first, in El Paso, Beto said it best. Trump Watch starts right now. Of course, we're still thinking about the mass killings on Saturday, and especially about El Paso, where 21-year-old Patrick Crucius murdered 22 people and wounded dozens more in a jihad against what he called an immigrant invasion. For comment, we turn to Joan Walsh. Of course, she's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and a political analyst for CNN. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. Well, none of us have been very enthusiastic about Beto O'Rourke as a presidential candidate, but El Paso is his hometown, and we we looked to him after the shootings. What did he have to say? He had a lot of uh, cuss words to say, John, and they were all really appropriate, and especially for the media. You know, I mean, I this is what I wrote about in The Nation a few days ago was just, you know, waking up to find out that Beto, at at the end of a long day, spent comforting survivors and talking to law enforcement and trying to figure out what had happened in his hometown, was asked by some reporter, thank God we don't know who it was, the president is speaking tomorrow, sir, what can he do to make things better? And Beto went off on the guy and said, are you kidding me? He's spewing racism. He is a font of of this hate. And he said the words, what the F? I mean, this is a a family podcast, so I won't say everything. (laughs) But, you you know, he said the S word. He just just went off and, you know, it went viral. And and Beto, I think, is probably going to rise a little bit in the polls as well he should, uh, because he really said what so many of us were thinking. I mean, we are so sick of the mainstream media acting like they expect Donald Trump to suddenly pivot and become a decent person. And it never happens. And it doesn't happen even if he reads correctly from a teleprompter, which he actually didn't on Monday. But, you know, he did say some of the right things. He condemned white supremacy. Who cares? Who cares? He spreads white supremacy. He is a white supremacist. So Beto spoke for many millions of us when he just lost his temper with, let's just say, well-meaning reporter and said, why do you continue to act as though this man can do anything good when he is not the only source, not the only font of evil, but certainly a major one. And then on Monday, teleprompter Trump said, quote, hate has no place in America. 
hatred warps the mind, close quote. How did this go over with the mainstream media? Unfortunately, there were too many people who acted like it made a difference. Oh, we've never heard this from him before. And a lot of people said falsely that he didn't do this after Charlottesville. As a matter of fact, John, he did do it after Charlottesville in 2017. He he said some of the right things in a monotone, just as he did yesterday. It was clear he didn't mean any of this. But then a day or two later, he said what, what became rightfully more famous, that there were good people on both sides of the clash with, between Nazis and Nazi protesters. So sadly, even after Beto lost it and used cuss words and got a lot of attention, I got to say, a lot of the people in the mainstream media acted as though what Trump did had meaning, as though the words that he spoke were meaningful. People acted like, whoa, he said white supremacy. Wow. He talked about hatred. He talked about racism. And it was incredibly disappointing to me to see that. The New York Times got in a lot of trouble on Monday night after Trump's speech for a couple of headlines, but one one that said Trump came out against racism. No, he, no, he didn't, because he can't. Be, one statement does not change who he is. Part of what I wrote about, even before Beto's comments, was watching him get off his uh, helicopter at Marine One on Sunday evening after he spent a whole weekend golfing, golfing while, while 30 people were being murdered. And then... This this pomp and ceremony where he comes down the stairs and there's a Marine saluting him and there are journalists waiting for him. And again, it's this ritual that we've always observed with all of our presidents. But given who he is, that ritual dishonors the people who died, certainly in El Paso, where we know there's a through line from his rhetoric to the deaths, through the murderer to the deaths. I'm not sure about Dayton yet. One of the best things in the media over the weekend was that they found some uh, footage of a Trump rally, I believe it was in May, in northern Florida. I had never heard this before. Very revealing. Tell us about that. When he was in the Florida panhandle, he was at a rally and he was ranting that the Border Patrol can't even use guns against these poor families, mostly families who are crossing illegally. And he went on and on, don't forget, we don't let them, we can't let them use weapons, other countries do, we can't, how do you stop them if you can't? And somebody, I think it was a woman, yelled out, shoot them. And People laughed, and he laughed, and he was like, ha ha, only in the panhandle can you get away with that. Only in the panhandle, as though he wishes you could get away with it everywhere. And then on Monday morning, Trump tweeted that he consider supporting some kind of background checks in exchange for the Democrats supporting what he called desperately needed immigration reform, you know, he sees everything in terms of a deal. So I guess it shouldn't surprise us that he would connect his fight to reduce immigration, which of course 
has nothing to do with mass killings. And it seems to me also, wouldn't this be basically a reward to the Texas gunman who does want immigration reform if his killings resulted in this passing, that would be a reward for his actions, wouldn't it? It would. It would mean that terrorism works. And let's, you know, he used the term immigration reform, but I just want to spell out for you what he wants in terms of immigration reform. It's not what we've been talking about for the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. It is building the wall. It is eliminating or hugely cutting back on family reunification. Uh, it, it, it means ending asylum or making asylum incredibly difficult. Uh, and it also means sharp restrictions on even legal immigration. They don't, un- you know, unless, as he, as he once said, you know, unless it's people from Norway. And people from Norway have it so good they don't want to come here. So his idea of immigration reform is racist from the get-go. So, yeah, he's basically trying to use a racist massacre to pass his racist immigration policies. He did draw, I got to say, you know, we got to always look on the bright side when there is one, John. He did drop that from his speech on Monday. (laughs) He tweeted it out as, as well as tweeting out, stuff about blaming fake news for the murders, um, which also came straight from the uh, El Paso shooters so-called manifesto. But by the time he, they sat him in front of the teleprompter, they had convinced him not to say insane stuff like that. We've been talking about the news coverage in the mainstream media. I thought the editorial in the New York times was pretty good. They said, um, If one of the perpetrators of this week's two mass shootings had adhered to the ideology of radical Islam, the resources of the American government would mobilize without delay. The awesome power of the state would work tirelessly to deny future terrorists access to weaponry, money, and forums to spread their ideology. The movements would be infiltrated by spies and informants. Its financiers would face sanctions. Places of congregation would be placed under surveillance. Those who gave aid and comfort to terrorists would be prosecuted. Programs would be established to de-radicalize former adherents. No Americans would accept laying the blame for such an attack on video games as the president did. I thought that was a pretty good point. I think so, too. I mean, you know, I don't want to live in a surveillance state, you know, whether it's of Muslims or disaffected white guys. But we've got to admit that even the Obama administration, they came out early in his in his first term. They came out with uh, a report saying that the the biggest domestic threat was not, you know, radical Islam, but was white supremacists, white militant groups, militia groups, etc. And they got such pushback from the, the right that even Obama, I mean, I don't think he did it personally, but they, they disbanded that office at Homeland Security. And Trump has further stripped those, the offices that, that follow white radicalism, white, white supremacy uh, over the years. It, it's been gutted. But obviously, if this guy had been, had been Muslim, I mean, it would change everything. If these, you know, if these last several people, if Cesar Sayak, who just got sentenced, the guy who, you know, sent a bunch of ineffectual 
bombs to Democrats and, and uh, journalists, but they didn't have to be ineffectual. Um, and he just got sentenced to 20 years. If it, you know, if he had been a Muslim sending these things to Trump and Republicans or Democrats, if the Pittsburgh Tree of Life murderer terrorist had been Muslim, all of these things that we've seen in the last couple of years, we are, I mean, our laws would have changed totally just like they did after 9-11. Again, I, I don't want us to go into a panic the way we did after 9-11. I just want some proportionality. And I think that resources need to be invested in finding these guys, identifying them, identifying what radicalizes them. I, you know, I'm a free speech person, but I'm thrilled that 8chan, where they post all their sick manifestos, is being taken down or having a hard time finding a place to be hosted. I think there's a lot that we can do. But the main thing the media has to do is talk about all of the various wellsprings. Uh, and one of them is in the White House. Trump is trying to use a racist massacre to pass racist immigration policies. Joan Walsh wrote about the mass shooting in El Paso for the nation.com. Thank you, Joan. Thanks, John. Talk to you soon. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Seymour Hersh is one of our heroes. In 1970, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his expose of the My Lai Massacre. He was a 33-year-old freelancer at the time. Since then, he's won pretty much every other award. He's worked as a staff writer for the New York Times and the New Yorker, where he wrote during the Iraq War. He's also written a dozen books. The new one is Reporter, a Memoir. Cy Hirsch, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. Well, let me list some of the big stories of yours featured in this book. Briefly, Abu Ghraib, Watergate, CIA surveillance of the anti-war movement in the Nixon years, the crimes of Henry Kissinger and the CIA in Chile and other places, and of course, the first and most unforgettable, Mi Lai. For me, the most powerful of your Mi Lai stories was one of the follow-ups of the original revelations that American soldiers killed unarmed Vietnamese civilians. Uh, 504 is the Vietnamese count. The U.S. Army now says 347. You learned that a lot of the shooting had been done by a soldier named Paul Meadlow uh, with your characteristic doggedness, you found Meadlow's mother in a small town near Terre Haute, Indiana. What happened when you met her? Well, you, you have to understand, this is these kids that were in this unit. They were mostly underclass. A, lar a larger percentage of uh, African Americans than in America uh, generally. Uh, same for Hispanics. And among the whites, most of them were rural and not very well educated. Paul Meadlow was from, the town was called New Goshen. 
It was a farming community um, um, 20 or 30 miles outside of Terre Haute, Indiana, which is, you know, <laughs> I don't know, from uh, 100 miles from Indianapolis, well, you know, wherever it is. I learned about the kid. I learned he'd done a lot of shooting. I learned that the day after he'd done a lot of shooting, he lost a leg. He stepped on a landmine in Vietnam. They were, on, they were just patrolling like it was another day the day after they murdered 500 people. And so I call up before I'm coming. I was, I think, in Salt Lake, and I, I found the number that looked like the right number, and I called. I said, I think I'm looking for your son, Paul. How is he? And whatever she said, well, what do you want to know? And I said, well, how's his leg? She said, well, he's doing fine. So I knew I had the right person. Said I was a reporter. Went to see her. Got there. It took all day. Got there late the next day. I don't know how in the hell I ever found Nugosian, let alone the house. She comes out. I'm, I tell her I'm the journalist. I introduced myself and said, I'm the guy that called last night. Uh, where's your son? Is he here? And she said he lives, there's a separate house. This is all wooden shack. She said he lives there with his wife. And I said, um, is it okay to talk to him? She said, well, you'll have to ask him. I, you know, I, I can't speak for him. And then she looked and she said to me, you know, she said, I gave them a good boy and they sent me back a murderer. Wow. And I got to tell you, I mean, you, you don't get those lines very often, like, like never. I just like froze. Um, what could you say? So I went in, and I went into his place, and for some reason, what I did, I didn't know him. He was a big boy. And I said, um, he, he knew I was coming. He said, I, I knew you were going to come today. My mom told me. I said, I want to talk about what happened. He said, well, I don't know. I said, but before they do, do that, I said, do me a favor. Take off your shoe. I want to see what they did to you, what your new leg looked like. And he was happy to do it. He took off his shoe and he showed me the prosthetic leg, took it off. Took a month, I later learned five months in a hospital to recover from that, that terrible wound to his leg. I said, so tell me what happened. And he began to say, I was, uh, he began to tell the story of just shooting. He put seven, seven or eight clips of 17 bullets and shot people in a ditch again and again and again. And uh, Callie kept on saying, do it. Most of the other boys equally as uneducated the other boys did not shoot uh, very few of the african-american guys the black guys did most of them just stayed away uh, and same with the hispanics uh, it was a white boy shoot let's go back to the beginning of your story we're interested in how you got started were you the kind of kid in high school who edited the school newspaper and constantly got in trouble with the principal over the stuff you wrote no no, I never had anything to do with journalism. I, my, my, um, my father was uh, an Eastern Europe from uh, uh, Lithuania. My mother was Eastern Europe from Poland. They weren't very much educated. They were sort of off the screen. I, was, I have a twin brother and two older sisters that were twins. I did a lot of sports. It was a perfectly ordinary, if lower middle class life. There was always enough food to eat. My mother baked a lot. She communi- communicated to my brother and me by, by um, food. My father just didn't communicate. He was sort of, you know, uh, I think really unhappy at where he was in life. He was only in the 40, he died at 49 of cancer. He smoked three or four packs of Lucky Strikes a day. And so I, I didn't have any intellectual role models, except that when I was about 12 or 13, I joined the Book of the Month Club. Huh. And I paid, I think, either 99 or a dollar a month. And I always picked the nonfiction I mean, monthly book, and half the time it was J. Edgar Hoover telling us about communism or somebody else like that. <laughs> but the other half was stuff that I got into, you know, uh, the Habsburg monarchy, I remember, the Catholic Church, uh, uh, history about uh, the China, 
you know, they would get these goofy things every month, every other month. And so I, I read a lot as a kid. Our school was, I was always good in school. In your book, you write about your first job as a journalist at the City News Bureau in Chicago. One of the big lessons you learned there as a cub reporter came when you were a, a police reporter and a call came in that a cop had shot and killed a suspect trying to escape. You rushed to the scene. What did you learn and what story did you write? If you remember, there's a famous play by Ben Hecht called uh, Front Page. Yeah. You know, uh, that's the city news. City news was full of aggressive guys, young guys wanting to get hired by one of the Chicago papers or somewhere else who were going to spend a year covering police and fires and uh, being the first people on the scene for the four dailies. And here I am covering the Chicago police midnight to eight. Not much goes on. Part of the time, <laughs> the cops would bring us some dope they confiscated, some Mary Jane, we called it. We'd smoke a joint and watch uh, some of the SAG films they caught. Cops were pretty nice. I got along with the cops. And so I learned a lot. We had the police radio. We could listen to it in, in the station. Two cops called in and said they have a suspect, and he tried to get away, and they shot him, and we're coming in to do a report. So they were coming to the main downtown police station. Being energetic, I, instead of waiting for them, the report, I ran down to the basement of the police station just to get the cops when they came in. And I, I happened to get there just as the squad car pulled in, and two beefy, obviously Irish, red-faced cops overweight got out and one of their buddies said so you had a guy try to escape on you he said no one of them said to his buddy he said no I, you know i told the nigger get out of here beat it and i shot him you know and i plugged him when he was going down an alley and i heard it you know wow wow i immediately disappeared from view i didn't want the cop to know i saw i heard that because this is chicago 1960 you did not mess around with the cops except you do it procedurally you don't stick your nose out and so I, what I did is I called my editors. I had only been at the City News about four months. I called it the day-night editor, whatever it was, and he said, do nothing. I said, what are you talking about? The guy said he shot him in the back. And my editor said, it's your word against the cops. You know, if you distinct impression I was left with is not only would you not be able to confirm the story, you, you would be in big trouble for telling the story. Hmm. So I waited a couple of days. Until the, uh, I went in and got the, the coroner's report, sort of casually looked at a bunch of them, and sure enough, there were three holes in his back. And so then I called back, and I said, there's some evidence. This is really important. And the editor said to me, and you have to remember, I've only been there about four, six months. The editor said to me, you don't understand what you're doing. Forget about it. It's not going to happen. You're not going to write that story. We're never going to handle it. I felt very depressed because it was self-censorship. We had censored a good story. My editor censored it. I was not powerful enough or smart enough to figure out a way to get around it. But I remember feeling this is, this is not a perfect business. And you know what? I'm also not perfect because I went along with it. Well, let's talk about the world right now. A lot of people say we are now in a new golden age of investigative journalism. Not since the glory days of Watergate has there been so much to do and so many talented people doing it. I wonder if you agree. Nope, not at all. Uh, I, I didn't support for Trump. I, I don't support his views. I see him as the orange man. But I also see him, you know, I also understand he was elected by uh, by a percentage of the people in the country. Maybe she got more votes, but he was elected. He won the election. He's president. But on the other hand, there's two new elements in the game. One is cable news. 
in which you have panel after panel and night after night. And, you know, the panels of journalists and reporters, let's talk about the new, new Trump this. And the first two words you hear 90% of the time from the panelists are the most lethal words, I think, in the, in the language today, I think. I don't care what somebody thinks. I want to know what they know. And so you have this, net, this layer of instant gratification, instant news. And the White House, no matter how much Trump may lie, the, the White House can release a, a one-page document alleging something around the world and CNN and, uh, and MSNBC and Fox will have Crytron, I think. What do they call Crytons? Things that go across the bottom of the page. Yeah. Breaking news. White House says 42 killed in Yemen raid. You know, nothing is checked. Everything's taking on face value. It cheapens the whole product. And so what you have now, this great division. We've always had a division in this country. What's new? So you have this incessant race to produce stories. You there's There's no checking it's just bam it's just bam 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 um and since uh, trump whether you like him or don't like him is catnip for the cable ratings and catnip for the number of subscribers that the uh, new york times tells us every three months they get mostly online because they're doing anti-trump left right and center so you get this complete dichotomy in the press corps i can think i don't like trump and he scares the hell out of me but i can also think in some weird way, you can't underestimate him. He's a, he's a circuit breaker. He'll say yes to going to North Korea without knowing a goddamn thing about it because that's his style. And you can criticize him all you want for it, but the fact of the matter is he's going to go. And, you know, the, whatever they need to do gets filled in later. And if he, if he on a weekend, the tension is flagging, he'll say, I'm not going to go and write a letter about it and then dominate news for three or more, four more days. I happen to believe he's being he's playing the press a hell of a lot more than the press wants to think. But that's just what I believe. I, that's what I think. It doesn't mean anything. What are the big stories that you think need to be written right now? Are they about the Trump organization's finances, or are they about something completely different? Well, I think some of the premises of our time, post-election, post-Hillary defeat, need to be analyzed. You know, I do most of my stuff as, as military and intelligence and that kind of stuff. I've been doing it for 50 years. And any time I see the American government all coming out, rushing to a judgment, as they did after uh, the election, before, before he was inaugurated, Trump, uh, coming out with what they call as high-confident assessments that uh, the Russians hacked into the DNC uh, John Pedosa's emails, and that turned the election. High confidence in that judgment. And um, I also saw there were assessments made of high confidence for, for two years after 9-11 after that the Iraqis have WMD. Even after it was clear they didn't, they were still putting out assessments. High confidence means to me, we don't have a clue. We yeah. don't know. And this doesn't mean that I'm not aware that Trump has put together the worst cabinet, that he doesn't read, that he's very dangerous. Um, but I, I tell you, then, uh, I also think he's going to pull troops out. He's very mercantile. He's going to pull troops out of, out, of, out of South Korea if they get a deal. And the whole thing about the Korea North and South is, as some of your audience surely knows, there's been three or four major disarmament meetings between the two of them without, without American involvement. And they've always broken down because the South always had, usually because of the South was aggressive and what it wanted from the North, more than the North. In this case, the South has new leadership. They're very open about it. They're keeping it going. I think they're going to get a deal. I think Trump will get a lot of attention for it. 
without having done that much for it. I think Trump can also, anytime he wants, go to Russia and meet with Putin, and he probably will. Probably call him best buddy. I'm not saying back off on it, but I'm just saying, come on, Giuliani. How many times are you going to hear the story? They, so they went five months ago and said the guy can pardon himself. He can't pardon himself. <laughs> and I don't see Mueller doing You know, I tell you, meanwhile, since this stuff's gone on, he's gone up seven, eight points in the ratings. He's higher than he ever was, 47, 48%. <laughs> I got to tell you, I think he's crazy like a fox. I think we're all misreading him. Seymour Hirsch, his new book is called Reporter, a Memoir. I love the whole thing. Sai, thanks for talking with us today. Hey, that was, it was fun. I'm sorry you didn't get to talk say anything, but that's <laughs> okay. Seymour <laughs> Hersh's book, Reporter, is out now in paperback. We spoke with him in June 2018. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener. Now we want to remember D.A. Pennybaker, the filmmaker who made Don't Look Back, the amazing documentary about Bob Dylan's tour of England in 1965. It made film history for its striking cinema verite style. He also made Monterey Pop with the unforgettable scene of Jimi Hendrix lighting fire to his guitar and the John Lennon-Yoko Ono concert film Live in Toronto 1969, the first time Lennon ever sang Cold Turkey Has Got Me on the Run. And Penny Baker also made The War Room about Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign. It had almost no footage of Clinton, but it made James Carville and George Stephanopoulos into media stars. Penny Baker died August 1st. We spoke with him at KPFK in Los Angeles in 2001, where he was being honored by the International Documentary Association for Don't Look Back. I asked Penny Baker what kind of planning and preparation went into the shooting of Don't Look Back. Well, I was just sort of hanging around with everybody else. I could sort of shoot anything I wanted. I mean, it was never, we never discussed any shooting plans or uh, or, or, or what should be or not should be shot. I think the only thing that ever came up was when uh, I, I first met Bob at the, uh, down at the Cedar Tavern in New York. He wanted to know if the idea he had of putting words of songs, of a song, on uh, pieces of cardboard and holding them up, uh, if I thought that was a good idea, and I said I thought it was a terrific idea. So we brought those cardboards along with us on the whole trip. This is, of course, the most famous scene in the film. It's at the very beginning where uh, Bob Dylan sings, uh, right. You Don't Need a Weatherman to Know Which Way the Wind Blows, It's Subterranean Homesick Sick Blues. Blues. That plays on the soundtrack while Bob stands silently in a grungy alley flipping the cards that contain the key words. That was all shot behind the hotel in London. We only did one take on that, so nobody, not a lot of thought went into it. Well, it certainly has made film and, and video history. Well, I, I, I don't know. People I know who are camera-making music videos call up sometimes and say, I've got a band here uh, who wants to do the card shot. <laughs> do you mind? And I say no. 
Well, the other really famous scene in in uh, in Don't Look Back is the the press conference scene where Bob Dylan meets the press when he arrives at Heathrow Airport in London in 1965. Let's listen to a little bit of that scene from D.A. Pennybaker's documentary, uh, Don't Look Back. Uh, a reporter asks Bob, what is your real message? My real message? <laughs> Keep a good head and always carry a light bulb. <laughs> Well, I plugged it in my socket and the house exploded. Right. Do you think that a lot of the young people who buy your records understand a single word of what you're singing? Sure. You reckon they do? Sure. <laughs> why, do you, why do you say they do? How can you be so sure? Well, they're quite complicated songs, aren't they? Yeah, but they, 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 they understand them. How do you know they understand them? Have they told you that they do? They told me. Haven't you ever heard that song? Um, she said so. <laughs> Do you think that I understand you because they can't see you? Uh, would you say that you cared about people particularly? Well, yeah, but, but you know, it, I mean, we all have our own definitions of all those words. Yeah. Yeah. Care and people no, and... Uh, well, we surely, I mean, we know what people are. Well, uh, do we? You sound angry in your songs. I mean, are you protesting against certain things that you, you, you're, you're angry about? I'm not angry. I'm delightful, sir. I see. I, I, Thank you very much. Okay. That's uh, Bob Dylan says, I'm not angry, I'm delightful in right. 19, 1965 and Don't Look Back. Uh, Mr. Pennybaker, in, in Don't Look Back, you document not only Bob Dylan's music, but also his relationship with Joan Baez, who, who went along with him. He treats her pretty badly on camera. What was going on in their relationship at that point? I think that they had just been on a tour a couple of months before. The, the two of them had gone and, and done the tour together, and I think she sort of thought maybe the, the, the tour could be continued, and I think he was trying to get away. Actually, I think he was aiming at something totally new, which was the whole uh, thing of the uh, electronic music yeah. that he was heading for. And I, I think he was writing those songs and thinking about them, and he didn't want to get kind of over-involved in, in, in the kind of the folk scene. I suspect that, but, you know... I never talk things like that over with him. I just what what I shot was what I saw. There's also some some scenes where he uh, really blows up. He yells at uh, reporters. He gets mad at uh, people uh, partying a little too enthusiastically yeah. in in his in his room. Uh, wh- what was it like to be shooting those scenes? You know, he had a room full of people he didn't know, and this is, makes him very nervous. And he just you know finally kind of exploded. But then at the end. He kind of came down off it, and I thought he was fairly uh, gentle about the whole thing. Uh, uh, so it, I, it never bothered me, but I thought it was, you know, he always said, can't we take that out of the film? And I'd say, no, we can't. Really? Say, I thought you'd say that. Can't help noting that Bob Dylan just celebrated his 60th birthday. He was 24 years old when you shot him. Yeah, we're him. all getting older. <laughs> <laughs> What's it like uh, to see this uh, 36 uh, years later? What's it like for you? Huh. Well, it's, you know, it, he always was an interesting person to me, and he was a person that was kind of even then devising himself in his music and, and in public performances. He, he was kind of inventing himself, and I think that you see now what he was able to invent, and it's really amazing. I mean, he's, he's you know, he's singing, he's going to sing till he drops, and that's what he does. And he, he's not as interested in getting it fixed and recorded and, and put on TV and in film, he wants each time he sings to be able to sing the thing totally differently. 
And that's an amazing, I mean, uh, how many singers do that? Uh, Let's listen now to a little bit of Bob Dylan from the soundtrack of Don't Look Back, Subterranean Homesick Blues. And you have to just imagine in your mind Bob Dylan in the alley uh, dropping those cards with the words from the lyrics on them. is in the basement mixing up the medicine I'm on the pavement thinking about the government the man in a trench coat batch out laid off says he's got a bad cough wants to get it paid off look out kid it's something you did God knows when but you're doing it again you better duck down the alleyway looking for a new friend the man in a coonskin cap in a pig pen wants eleven dollar bills you only got ten Bob Dylan in the 1965 film by D.A. Pennybaker. We spoke with him in 2001. He died August 1st. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds, as always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.